from the issue of Israel-Palestine to the arrest of Julian Assange, from nuclear war to climate change. After viewing part of a new film about him called Internationalism or Extinction, Noam Chomsky talked about the past two years under President Trump. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to start with a brief reminiscence of a period which is eerily similar to today in many unpleasant respects. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, exactly 80 years ago, uh, almost to the day, happened to be the uh, moment of the first article that I remember having written on political issues. Uh, easy to date, it was right after the fall of Barcelona in February. 1939. Uh, the article was about uh, what seemed to be the inexorable spread of fascism over the world. In 1938, uh, Austria had been annexed by Nazi Germany. Uh, a few months later, Czechoslovakia was betrayed, uh, put placed in the hands of the Nazis at the Munich uh, conference. Uh, the, uh, in Spain, uh, one city after another was falling to Franco's forces. Uh, February 1939, Barcelona fell. That was the end of the Spanish Republic. The uh, uh, remarkable uh, popular revolution, anarchist revolution of 1936, 37, 38 had already been crushed by force. It looked as if uh, fascism was going to spread without end. Uh, it's not exactly what's happening today, but if we can borrow Mark Twain's famous phrase, uh, history doesn't repeat, but sometimes rhymes, too many similarities to overlook. When Barcelona fell, there was a huge flood of refugees from Spain. Uh, most went to Mexico, about 40,000. Some went to New York City, uh, established uh, anarchist offices in Union Square, uh, secondhand bookstores in down Fourth Avenue. That's where I got my early political education, roaming around that area. That's 80 years ago. Now it's today. Uh, we didn't know at the time, but uh, the U.S. government was also beginning to think about the, how the spread of fascism uh, might be virtually unstoppable. Uh, they didn't view it with the same alarm that I did as a 10-year-old. We now know that the uh, attitude of the State Department was uh, rather mixed regarding uh, uh, what the significance of the Nazi movement was. Actually, there was a consul in uh, Berlin, U.S. consul in Berlin, who was sending back pretty mixed comments about 
the Nazis, suggesting maybe they're not as bad as everyone says. Uh, he stayed there until uh, Pearl Harbor Day when he was withdrawn. A uh, famous diplomat named George Kennan. Uh, not not a bad indication of the mixed attitude towards these developments. Uh, the, uh, it turns out, couldn't have known it at the time, but shortly after this, 1939, uh, the State Department and the uh, Council on Foreign Relations uh, began to uh, carry out planning about the post-war world. What would the post-war world look like? And in the early years, right about that time, next few years, uh, they assumed that the post-war world would be divided between a German-controlled world, Nazi-controlled world, most of Eurasia, and a U.S.-controlled world, uh, which would include the, uh, the Western Hemisphere, uh, the former British Empire, which the U.S. would take over, uh, parts of the Far East, and that would be the shape of the post-war world. Uh, those uh, views, we now know, uh, were maintained until uh, the Russians uh, turned the tide. Uh, Stalingrad, 1942, the uh, huge uh, tank battle at uh, Kursk a little later, uh, made it pretty clear that the Russians would defeat the Nazis. Uh, the planning changed. Uh, picture of the post-war world changed, uh, went on to what we've seen for the last uh, period since that time. Well, that was 80 years ago. Uh, today, we do not, we are not facing the rise of anything like Nazism, but we are facing the spread of uh, uh, what's sometimes called uh, uh, ultra-nationalist, uh, reactionary, international, uh, trumpeted openly by its advocates, including uh, Steve Bannon, the impresario of the movement, uh, just uh, had a victory yesterday. The Netanyahu uh, election in Israel solidified the reactionary uh, alliance that's being established, all of this under the U.S. aegis, uh, run by the triumph triumvirate, uh, Trump, uh, Pompeo, Bolton, triumvirate, uh, could borrow a phrase from George W. Bush to describe them, but out of politeness I won't. Uh, the, uh, the Middle East alliance consists of the extreme reactionary states of the region, uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, uh, Egypt under the most uh, brutal dictatorship of its history, uh, Israel right at the center of it, uh, confronting Iran, uh, severe threats that we're facing. In Latin America, the uh, election of uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, put in power the most extreme, uh, most uh, outrageous of the right-wing ultra-nationalists who are now plaguing the hemisphere. Uh, yesterday, uh, uh, Lenin Moreno the, uh, of uh, Ecuador uh, uh, took a strong step towards uh, joining the 
far-right alliance by expelling Julian Assange from the embassies, picked up quickly by the U.S., will face a very uh, dangerous future unless there's a significant popular protest. Uh, Mexico and is one of the rare exceptions in Latin America to these developments. Uh, this has happened in Western Europe. The right-wing parties are growing, some of them very frightening in character. There is a counter-development. Uh, Yanis Varoufakis, the uh, former finance minister of Greece, uh, very uh, significant uh, uh, important individual, along with Bernie Sanders, have uh, urged the formation of a progressive international to counter the right-wing international that's developing. At the level of states, uh, the balance looks overwhelmingly in the wrong direction, but states aren't the only entities. At the level of people, it's quite different, and that could make the difference. Uh, that means a need to protect uh, the functioning democracies, to enhance them, to make use of the opportunities they provide for the kinds of activism that have led to significant progress in the past could save us in the future. I want to make a couple of remarks below about the severe difficulty of maintaining and instituting democracy, the powerful forces that have always opposed it, uh, the, uh, the uh, achievements of somehow salvaging and enhancing it, and the significance of that for the future. Uh, but first, a uh, couple of words about uh, the challenges that we face, uh, which you heard enough about already and you all know about. I don't have to go into them in detail. Uh, to describe these challenges as extremely severe would be uh, an error. Uh, the phrase does not capture the enormity of uh, the kinds of challenges that lie ahead. And any uh, serious discussion of the future of humanity must begin by recognizing a critical fact that uh, the human species is now facing a question that has never before arisen in human history, a question that has to be answered quickly. Uh, will human society survive for long? Well, as you all know, uh, for 70 years we've been living under the shadow of nuclear war. Those who've looked at the record can only be amazed that we've survived this far. Uh, time after time, it's come extremely close to terminal disaster, even minutes away. It's kind of a miracle that we've survived. Uh, miracles don't go on forever. Uh, this has to be uh, terminated and quickly. The recent uh, nuclear posture review of the uh, Trump administration uh, dramatically increases the threat of uh, conflagration, which would in fact be terminal for the species. Uh, we may remember that this nuclear posture review was sponsored by Jim Mattis, 
who was regarded as uh, too civilized uh, to, retain, to be retained in the administration. Gives you a sense of what can be tolerated in the Trump-Pompeo-Bolton uh, world. Well, there were three major arms treaties. Uh, the ABM Treaty, Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the INF Treaty, uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces, the New START Treaty. Uh, the U.S. pulled out of the ABM Treaty in 2002. And anyone who believes that uh, uh, anti-ballistic missiles are defensive weapons is uh, deluded about the nature of these systems. Uh, the U.S. has just pulled out of the INF Treaty established by Gorbachev and Reagan in 1987, which sharply reduced the threat of uh, war in Europe, which would very quickly spread. Uh, the background of that signing of that treaty was the demonstrations that you just saw depicted on the film, massive public demonstrations were the background for leading to a treaty that uh, made a very significant difference worth remembering that and many other cases where significant popular activism has made a huge difference. The lessons are too obvious to enumerate. Well, the Trump administration has just withdrawn from the INF Treaty. Uh, the Russians withdrew right afterwards. Uh, if you take a close look, you find that each side has a kind of a credible case uh, saying that the opponent has not lived up to the treaty. Uh, for those who want a picture of the, how the Russians might look at it, uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the major journal of, on arms control issues, had a lead article a couple of weeks ago by Theodore Postel uh, uh, pointing out uh, how dangerous the uh, U.S. installations of anti-ballistic missiles on the Russian border, uh, how dangerous they are and can be perceived to be by uh, the Russians. Notice on the Russian border, uh, tensions are mounting on the Russian border. Both sides are carrying out uh, provocative actions. Uh, we should, in a rational world, uh, what would happen would be negotiations between the two sides with independent experts to evaluate the charges that each is making against the other to lead to a resolution of these charges, restore the treaty. Uh, that's a rational world, but it's unfortunately not the world we're living in. And no efforts at all have been made in this direction, and they won't be unless uh, there is significant pressure. Well, that leaves the New START Treaty. Uh, the New START Treaty uh, has already uh, been uh, designated by the uh, figure in charge uh, who has modestly described himself as the greatest president in American history. Uh, he gave it uh, the usual designation of anything that was done by his predecessors, uh, the worst treaty that ever happened in human history. Uh, we've got to get rid of it. 
if in fact uh, this comes up for renewal right after the next election, and a lot is at stake, a lot is at stake and whether that treaty will be renewed. It has succeeded in very significantly reducing the number of nuclear weapons to a level way above what they ought to be, but way below what they were before, and it could go on. Well, meanwhile, global warming proceeds on its inexorable course uh, during this millennium. Uh, every single year, with one exception, has been hotter than the last one. The, uh, there are recent scientific papers, uh, James Hansen and others, which uh, indicate that the pace of global warming, which has been increasing since uh, about 1980, uh, may be sharply escalating and may be moving from linear growth to exponential growth, which means doubling every couple of decades. Uh, we're already approaching the conditions of 125,000 years ago uh, when uh, the, the uh, sea level was about roughly 25 feet higher than it is today uh, with the uh, melting, the rapid melting of the Antarctic uh, huge uh, ice fields, uh, we might, that point might be reached. Uh, the uh, consequences of that are almost unimaginable. I mean, I won't even try to depict them, but you can figure out quickly what that means. Well, meanwhile, while this is going on, you regularly read in the press uh, uh, euphoric accounts of uh, how the United States is advancing in fossil fuel production. It's now surpassed Saudi Arabia. We're in the lead of fossil fuel production. The uh, big banks, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and others, are uh, pouring money into uh, new investments in fossil fuels, including the most dangerous, like Canadian tar sands. Uh, and uh, uh, this is all presented with uh, great euphoria, excitement. Uh, we're now reaching energy independence. We can control the world, determine uh, uh, the, the uh, use of uh, fossil fuels in the world. Barely a word on what the meaning of this is, which is quite obvious. It's not that the reporters, commentators don't know about it, uh, that the CEO of the banks don't know about it. Of course they do. But uh, these are kind of institutional pressures that just are extremely hard to extricate themselves from. Uh, you can put yourself in the, uh, try to put yourself in the position of the, uh, say, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, the biggest bank, which is spending large sums in investment in fossil fuels. Uh, he certainly knows everything that you all know about global warming. It's no secret. But what are the choices? It basically has two choices. One choice is to do exactly what he's doing. Uh, the other choice is uh, to resign and be replaced by somebody else who'll do exactly what he's doing. It's not an individual uh, problem. It's an institutional problem, which can be met, but only under tremendous public pressure. And, this, and the, we, we've recently seen very dramatically how it can, how the, the solution can be reached. 
group of young people, Sunrise Movement, uh, organized, uh, got to the point of sitting in on congressional offices, aroused some interest on, from the new progressive uh, figures who were able to make it to Congress under a lot of popular pressure, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, joined by Ed Markey, actually placed the Green New Deal on the agenda. That's a remarkable achievement. Of course, it gets hostile attacks from everywhere. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's a couple of years ago, it was unimaginable that it would be discussed as a result of the activism of these group of young people. It's now right in the center of the agenda. It's got to be implemented in one form or another. It's essential for survival, maybe not in exactly that form, but some modification of it. Tremendous change achieved by the commitment of a small group of young people. That tells you the kind of thing that can be done. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, doomsday clock of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists uh, last uh, January was set at uh, two minutes to midnight. That's the closest it's been to terminal disaster since 1947. Uh, the uh, announcement of the settlement, of the setting, uh, mentioned the two major familiar threats uh, the threat of nuclear war, which is increasing, the threat of global warming, uh, which is increasing further, and it added a third for the first time, the undermining of democracy. That's the third threat along with global warming and uh, nuclear war. And that was quite appropriate because functioning democracy offers the only hope of overcoming these threats. They're not going to be dealt with by major institutions, state or private, acting without massive public pressure, which means that the, the means of democratic functioning have to be kept alive, used, uh, the way the Sunshine Movement did it, the way the great mass demonstration in the early 80s did it, and the way we continue today. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman in Boston. As we sit down with Noam Chomsky for a public conversation, I asked him about the arrest of Julian Assange. Well, the uh, Assange arrest is uh, scandalous in several respects. Uh, one of them is just the effort of governments and it's not just the U.S. government. The British are cooperating. Uh, Ecuador, of course, is now cooperating. Uh, Sweden before had cooperated. Uh, the efforts to silence a journalist who was producing materials that people in power didn't want the uh, rascal multitude to know about, okay? That's basically what happened. Uh, WikiLeaks was producing things that people ought to know about those in power. People in power don't like that, so therefore we have to silence it, okay? Uh, this is the kind of thing, the kind of scandal that takes place, unfortunately, over and over. Uh, to take another example, right next door to Ecuador, 
uh, in Brazil, where the developments that have gone on are extremely important. This is the most important country in Latin America, and one of the most important in the world uh, under the Lula government early in this millennium. Uh, Brazil was uh, uh, the most, maybe the most respected country in the world. It was the voice for the global south under the leadership of Lula da Silva. Uh, notice what happened. There was a coup, soft coup, to eliminate the uh, nefarious effects of the Labour Party, the Workers' Party. Uh, these are described by the World Bank, not me, the World Bank as the golden decade in Brazil's history with radical reduction of poverty, uh, massive extension of inclusion of uh, marginalized populations, large parts of the population, Afro-Brazilian uh, indigenous who were brought into the society, a sense of dignity and hope for the population. Uh, that couldn't be tolerated. Uh, after Lula's, uh, uh, after he left office, a kind of a soft coup take place. I won't go through the details, but the last move last September was to take the uh, Lula da Silva, the leading, the most popular figure in Brazil, who was uh, almost certain to win the forthcoming election, put him in jail, solitary confinement, essentially a death sentence, 25 years in jail, uh, banned from reading uh, press or books, uh, and crucially, barred from making a public statement, unlike mass murderers on death row. This in order to silence the person who was likely to win the election. He's the most important political uh, uh, political prisoner in the world. Uh, do, do you hear anything about it? Well, Assange is a similar case. We've got to silence this voice. Uh, you go back to history. Uh, some of you may recall when uh, uh, Mussolini's uh, fascist government uh, put Antonio Gramsci in jail. They said, the prosecutor said, we have to silence this voice for 20 years. Can't let it be speak. That's Assange. That's Lula. There are other cases. That's one scandal. The other scandal is just the extraterritorial reach of the United States, which is shocking. I mean, why should the United States why should any, no other state could possibly do it, but why should the United States have the power to control what others are doing elsewhere in the world? I mean, it's outlandish situation. It, takes, it goes on all the time. Uh, we never even notice it. At least there's no comment on it. Uh, take the trade agreements with China, okay? Uh, what, what are the trade agreements about? They're an effort to prevent China's economic development. It's exactly what they are. China has a development model. Uh, the, the Trump administration doesn't like it, so therefore let's undermine it. Uh, ask yourself, uh, what would happen if China did not observe 
the uh, rules that the United States is trying to impose. Uh, China, for example, uh, when uh, Boeing or uh, Microsoft or uh, some other major com company invest in China, uh, China wants to have uh, con some control over the nature of the investment. Uh, they want some degree of technology transfer. Uh, they should gain something from the technology. Uh, is there something wrong with that? Uh, that's how the United States developed stealing technology, what we call stealing technology from England. It's how England developed uh, taking technology from more advanced countries, uh, India, the low countries, even Ireland. Uh, that's how every developed country has uh, reached the stage of advanced development. Uh, if, if Boeing and uh, Microsoft don't like those arrangements, they don't have to invest in China. Nobody has a gun to their heads. Uh, if you really, if anybody really believed in capitalism, uh, they should be free to make any arrangement they want with China. If it involves technology transfer, okay. Uh, the United States wants to block that, so China can't develop. Uh, take uh, what are called intellectual property rights, uh, uh, pa exorbitant patent rights for uh, medicines, uh, for uh, uh, windows, for example. Bill G Microsoft has a monopoly on uh, uh, operating systems through the World Trade Organization. Suppose China didn't observe these. Who would benefit and who would lose? Well, the fact of the matter is that consumers in the United States would benefit. It would mean that uh, you'd get cheaper medicines. It would mean that uh, when you get a computer, uh, you wouldn't be stuck with Windows. You could get a better operating system. Uh, Bill Gates would have a little less money. The, uh, pharmaceutical corporations wouldn't be as super rich as they are, a little less rich, but the consumers would benefit. Is there something wrong with that? Uh, is there a problem with that? Well, uh, you might ask yourself, what's, what lies behind all of these discussions and negotiations? This is true across the board. Almost any issue you pick, you can ask yourself, why is this accepted? So in this case, why is it acceptable for the United States to have the power uh, to uh, even begin to, 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 to give a, even a proposal to extradite somebody whose crime is to expose to the public materials that people in power don't want, us, don't want them to see? Uh, that's basically what's happening. Now, um, what about what's happened in Israel? Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu winning a record fifth term uh, right before the election. He announces that he, he will annex illegal Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. Last month, Trump officially recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Well, first of all, uh if, Netan if, if Benny Gantz had been elected instead of Netanyahu, the difference would not be very great. Uh, the difference between the two candidates is not substantial in terms of policy. Uh, Netanyahu, uh, here, here's another example of the extraterritorial reach of the United States. 
Netanyahu is somewhat more extreme. The United States desperately wanted him to be elected. And the Trump administration has been giving gift after gift to Netanyahu to try to get him elected. It was enough to carry him over the roughly 50, 50, close to 50-50 election. Uh, one of them, of course, was to uh, move the embassy to Jerusalem in violation of uh, 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 not only international law, uh, but even uh, Security Council resolutions that the U.S. had participated in. A uh, very dramatic change. The second equally dramatic was to uh, uh, authorize Israeli annexation of the Golan Heights. The Syrian Golan Heights are, under international law, occupied territory. Uh, Israel, every uh, major uh, uh, institution, has uh, every relevant institution, Security Council, International Court of Justice, all agree on this. Uh, Israel did formally annex the Golan Heights, but the Security Council, UN Security Council, with the U.S. participating, declared that null and void. Okay? Trump unilaterally reversed it. Another gift to Netanyahu saying, try to demonstrate to the Israeli public that uh, with U.S. backing, he can get anything they want. Uh, the last was uh, Trump's uh, latest, uh, just before the election, his declaration that if elected, he would annex parts of the West Bank. That was with tacit US, U.S. authorization. Uh, these are measure, strong measures that were taken to interfere radically with a foreign election. Uh, have you heard something about how terrible it is to interfere in foreign elections. I think maybe that you noticed that somewhere. Uh, here it's done radically. Uh, it's considered fine. Uh, but exactly what are the actual consequences of that in terms of the way policy has been evolving? Fact of the matter is not much. So take the uh, annexation of the Golan Heights. Uh, in fact, it was declared null and void by the Security Council. It was condemned by the International Court of Justice. But did anybody do anything about it? Has any move been made to prevent Israel's development of the Golan Heights? Establishment of settlements, uh, uh, enterprises, uh, development of uh, ski resorts on Mount Hermon, uh, anything. No, nobody lifted a finger. Nobody lifted a finger for a simple reason. The U.S. won't allow it. Nobody says that, but that's the fact. Well, now it's uh, formally authorized instead of just happening. Uh, take the uh, Netanyahu's proposal to annex parts of the West Bank. That's been going on for 50 years, literally, right after the 67 war. Uh, both political parties, both major groupings in Israel, the former labor-based uh, party, the Likud-based party, uh, 
conglomerate. They uh, have uh, slightly different policies, but essentially they have been carrying out a development program in the West Bank which is geared towards the goal, the very clear goal of creating what will be a kind of greater Israel in which Israel will take over whatever is of value in the West Bank, leave the Palestinian population concentrations like in Nablus and Tulkarm, leave them isolated. Uh, in the rest of the region, there are maybe 150 or so little Palestinian enclaves, more or less surrounded by checkpoints, often uh, separated from their fields, uh, able to survive, but barely. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Jewish settlements are uh, developed. Uh, cities have been constructed. Uh, major city, Mala Dumim, constructed mostly under Clinton, incidentally, under the Clinton years, east of Jerusalem. Uh, the, the road to it essentially bisects the West Bank, uh, further ones up north. Uh, Jerusalem itself is maybe five times the size of what it ever was historically. All of these are linked by uh, 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 highly developed infrastructure projects. Uh, you can uh, take a trip. You can try, uh, these are this is basically creating uh, pleasant suburbs of the uh, of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem in the West Bank. Uh, you can travel from uh, Maale Dumim to Tel Aviv on a big highway, restricted to uh, Israelis and tourists, not Palestinians, uh, more easily than you can get from the South Shore to Boston. Uh, never seeing an Arab. Uh, all of this has been steadily developed year after year with tacit U.S. support. U.S. provides the diplomatic support, a lot of the economic support, uh, the military aid. Uh, meanwhile, the government says, we don't like it, stop doing it, but providing the means for it. Well, the only difference in Netanyahu's uh, statement with Trump's tacit backing is, I'm going to go ahead and annex, the, annex all of this instead of just developing it subject to eventual annexation. Now, these are the real things that have been happening. Now, the, uh, Netanyahu, uh, the Netanyahu victory, as I mentioned before, uh, solidifies an alliance that, is being, that has been developed. It's been, uh, parts of it have been kind of undercover for years, not formal, but functioning. Now coming into the open of uh, the most reactionary Arab states, primarily Saudi Arabia, one of the most reactionary states in the world, uh, Egypt under uh, the Sisi dictatorship, the worst dictatorship in Egypt's history, uh, the United Arab Emirates, similar uh, Israel right in the center of it. It's part of the, uh, uh, the international right-wing uh, uh, alliance system, uh, the international uh, reactionary ultranationalist alliance system that's taking shape uh, with the U.S. Uh, leadership, a kind of a new global system that's developing. Uh, South America's under uh, Bolsonaro's another part of it. And uh, yet, 
in the United States, there's this growing awareness. We, for example, the Democratic Republican vote uh, against Saudi Arabia, UAE's war in Yemen, fueled by the United States. Does that give you hope? That's a very interesting development. That's actually Bernie Sanders. It's uh, what, uh, and, and notice, uh, and it's, it is a very important development, but let's notice what happened. Uh, the Saudi uh, United Arab Emirates war in Yemen has been a hideous atrocity. Um, there's probably, nobody knows, maybe 60, 70,000 people killed, uh, half the population uh, barely surviving. It's, uh, the UN describes it as the worst humanitarian disaster in the world. It's a real monstrosity. It's been going on year after year using uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, or using U.S. weapons, secondarily British weapons, U.S. intelligence support, the U.S. Uh, intelligence directly wor working closely with uh, the Saudis to target uh, bombing, so on and so forth. All of this has been happening with no protest. Then came the Khashoggi killing, brutal killing of a journalist uh, for the Washington Post. That caused outrage, okay? It should have, but, you know, that's not the reason why the Yemen war should have suddenly uh, had the spotlight signed on it, shined on it, but it was. Then Bernie Sanders came along with a couple of others and initiated the legislation which put some crimps in the uh, direct U.S. support for the war, which is significant, but uh, we should put it in the context of what in fact happened. And I think, uh, I think we can be pretty confident that the Trump-Pompeo-Bolton uh, uh, triumvirate will find a way around it, keep the war going, unless the public seriously protests. Now, there is something else to pay it that's worth paying attention to. The support for uh, Israeli expansionism, repression, uh, the whole uh, alliance that's developing, that support has shifted in the United States from the uh, more liberal sectors, roughly the Democratic Party, to the far right. Uh, not very long ago, uh, support for Israel was based passionately in the liberal sectors of the population. It was a democratic issue. It isn't anymore. In fact, if you look at, uh, uh, in the polls, uh, people who identify themselves as liberal, as Democrats, uh, by now tend to support Palestinian rights more than Israel. That's a dramatic change. It's a, it's a, uh, support for Israel now is in the most reactionary parts of the population. Uh, evangelical Christians, uh, ultranationalists, uh, basically it's a far-right issue. Uh, among younger people, this is even more the case. I mean, I've, I can see it myself, just my own personal experience. Uh, up until about maybe uh, 10 or 15 years ago, if I was giving a talk at a university, on Israel-Palestine, uh, even my own university, MIT, 
I had to have police protection, literally. Uh, police would pr try to prevent the meeting from being broken up. Uh, uh, they wouldn't let me walk to my car alone. I had to be accompanied by police. Uh, uh, meetings were broken up. Uh, uh, nobody was objecting to any of this. It was happening all the time. Uh, that's changed totally. And it's a very significant change. I think that sooner or later, I hope sooner, this may lead to a shift in U.S. policy. There's some very simple moves that could be made in U.S. policy that would change the situation in the Middle East dramatically. So, for example, one simple proposal is that the United States government should live up to U.S. law. Uh, that doesn't sound too dramatic. Uh, the United States has laws, like the uh, so-called Lay Law, Patrick Lay Law, which requires that no military aid can be given to any military organization that is involved in systematic human rights abuses. Well, the Israeli army is involved in massive human rights abuses. Uh, if the U.S. were to live up to U.S. law, we would cut off aid to the IDF, the Israeli army. That step alone would have a major effect, uh, not just the material aid, but the symbolic meaning of it. And it's quite possible that uh, with the shift of public opinion, especially among younger people, there might come a point when there will be a call for the United States to follow its own laws. Okay? Uh, again, not a very dramatic appeal. And it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't even be breaking new ground. Noam Chomsky. We spoke at the Old South Church Thursday night. He was visiting his longtime home of Boston. He was a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology for over 50 years. At the end of the event, we celebrated his 90th birthday. Speaking of which, a very happy birthday to Anna Ozbeck and Joe Parker. Special thanks today to Mike Burke, John Hamilton, Tay Studio, Dennis Moynihan, and Amy Littlefield. I'm Amy Goodman from Boston. Thanks so much for joining us.